verses 1 through 34. Now, verses 1 through 5, it's titled, The Word in Eternity and in Time. Verses 6 through 8, we're going to be looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. And in verses 9 through 18, we're going to be looking at the Son of God's first advent, the coming of Christ. And verses 19 through 30, 34, we're going to be looking at the testimony of John the Baptist. But before we get started, I want to read just a little synopsis here according to the Gospel of John. It says, Just as a coin has two sides, both valid, so Jesus Christ has two natures, both valid. Luke presents Christ in his humanity as the Son of Man, and John portrays him in his deity as the Son of God. John's purpose is crystal clear, to set forth Christ in his deity in order to spark believing faith in his readers. John's gospel is topical, not primarily chronological, and it revolves around seven miracles and seven I am statements. Following the extended eyewitness description in the upper upper room mill and the discourse, John records events leading up to his resurrection and the final proof that Jesus is who he claims to be, the Son of God. Let's look at verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Now, he did not have a beginning himself, but he existed from all eternity. As far as the human mind can go back, the Lord Jesus was there. He never was created. He had no beginning. He had a separate and a distinct personality. He was not just an idea, a thought, or some vague kind of example but a real person who lived with God. He not only dwelt with God, but he himself was God. The Bible teaches that there is one God and that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three of these persons are God. Now in this verse, Two of the persons of the Godhead are mentioned, God the Father and God the Son. It is is the first of many clear statements in the gospel that Jesus Christ is God. So it's not enough to say that he is a God, that he is God-like, or that he is divine. The Bible teaches that he is God. Let's look at verse 2 now. It says, He was in the beginning with God. Now this verse teaches that Christ's personality and deity were without beginning. He did not become a person for the first time as a babe in Bethlehem, nor did he become a God after his resurrection, as some teach today. He is God from all eternity. Let's look at verse 3. 
It says, all things were made through him, and without him nothing, nothing was made that was made. Now, he himself was not a created being. Rather, he was the creator of all things. Now, this includes mankind, the animals, the heavenly planets, the angels, all things visible and invisible. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In other words, there can be no possible exception. If a thing was made, he made it. He has created all things. He, of course, is superior to everything he has created. Now, all three persons of the Godhead were involved in the work of creation. God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1-1. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, Genesis 1-2. And all things were created through him, Christ, and for him, Colossians 1-16b. Verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now this does not simply mean that he possessed life, but that he was and is the source of life. The word here includes both physical and spiritual life. When we were born, we received physical life. When we were born again, we receive spiritual life. Both come from him. The life was the light of men. The same one who supplied us with life is also the light of men. He provides the guidance and the direction necessary for man. See, it's one thing to exist, but quite another to know how to live and to know the true purpose of life and to know the way to heaven. Now the same one who gave us life is the one who provides us with light for the pathway that we travel. It's interesting, in this chapter, there are seven wonderful titles of our Lord Jesus Christ in this opening chapter of the gospel. He is called number one, the Word, and we find that in verses one and 14. Number two, he is called the light. We find that in verses 5 and 7. Number three, he's called the Lamb of God. And we find that in verses 29 and 36. Number four, he's called the Son of God. And we find that in verses 34 and 49. Number five, he's called the Christ, the Messiah. We find that in verse 41. And number six... He's called the King of Israel, and we find that in verse 49. And number seven, he's called the Son of Man, and we find that in verse 51. Now in verse five, it says, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So in other words, the entrance of sin brought darkness into the minds of men. It plunged the world into darkness in the sense that men in general neither knew God nor wanted to know him. 
Into this darkness the Lord Jesus came, a light shining in a dark place. Now the darkness did not comprehend it. This may mean that the darkness did not understand the Lord Jesus when he came into the world. Men did not realize who he really was or why he had come. Now another meaning, however, is given in the New King James Version. The darkness did not overcome it. Then the thought would be that man's rejection did not prevent the true light from shining. Now we're going to be looking at uh, verses 6 through 8 here. And this is on the ministry of John the Baptist. So let me read this. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light, that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 6 refers to John the Baptist, not the John who wrote this gospel. John the Baptist was sent from God as a forerunner of the Lord Jesus. His ministry was to announce the coming of Christ and to tell people to get ready to receive him. Verse 7, this man came to testify to the fact that Jesus was truly the light of the world so that all people might put their trust in him. In verse 8, it says, if John had, to tr if John had tried to attack, attack, attract attention to himself, he would have been unfaithful to his mission. He pointed men to Jesus and not to himself. Now we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 18, and we titled it, The Son of God's First Coming. So let's read verse 9 together here. It says, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Other persons down through history have claimed to be guides and saviors. But the one whom John witnessed was the genuine light, the best and the truest light. Another translation of this verse is, The true light which coming into the world gives light to every man. In other words, the expression coming into the world may describe the true light rather than every man. It was by the coming of the true light into the world that every man was given light. It means that the light shines on all people without regard to nationality, race, or color. It also means that by shining on all men, the Lord Jesus has revealed men in their true character. By coming into the world as a perfect man, he has shown how imperfect other men are. When a room is in darkness, you do not see the dust on the furniture. But when the light goes on, you see the room as it actually is. In the same sense, the shining of the true light reveals man as he actually is. 
verse 10. It says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, from the time of his birth in Bethlehem until the time he went back to heaven, he was in the very same world in which we now live. He had brought brought the whole world into existence. In other words, he was its rightful owner. Now, instead of recognizing him as the creator, men thought that he was just another man like themselves. They treated him like a stranger and an outcast. Verse 11, it says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Stop and think about it. He was not trespassing here on someone else's property. Rather, he was living on a planet which he himself had made. His own did not receive him. So in a general sense, this might refer to all mankind. And it is true that most mankind rejected him. But in a special sense, the Jewish nation was chosen. It was his chosen earthly people. When he came into the world... He presented himself to the Jews as their Messiah, but they would not receive him. Let's look at verse 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So now he offers himself to all mankind again. And to those who receive him, he gives the right or the authority to become children of God. This verse tells us clearly how we can become children of God. It is not by works. It is not by church membership. It's not by doing one's best, but by receiving him and believing in his name. Let's look at verse 13. It says, well, let's look at verse 13, 14. 13 and 14 together here, okay? In verse 13 it says, Who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory the glory as the only begotten Father, full of truth, grace and truth. So in verse 13 here, to become a child in a physical sense, one must be born. So also to become a child of God, one must have a second birth. This is known as the new birth, or conversion, or being saved. And we find that in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. I'm sure you remember when Nicodemus came into the garden, and he questioned Christ. He says, how can a man be born when he's old? He says, he can't go into his mother's womb for the second time. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So he said, do not marvel, because I said, you must be born again. 
He said, the wind blows where it wishes and you can hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it's coming or where it's going. So is every man that's born of the Spirit. Now, this verse tells us three ways by which the new birth does not take place and the one way by which it does. First, the three ways by which we are not born again. It says, not of the blood. This means that a person does not become a Christian through having Christian parents. <clears throat> Salvation is not passed down from parent to child through the bloodstream. Number two, it is not the will of the flesh. In other words, a person does not have the power in his own flesh to produce the new birth. Now, although he must be willing in order to be saved, yet his own will is not enough to save him. <clears throat> and number three, not of the will of man. No other man can save a person. A preacher, for instance, may be very anxious to see a person born again but he does not have the power to produce this marvelous birth. How then does this birth take place? The answer is found in the words, but of God. This means simply that the power to pr produce this new birth does not rest with anyone or anything but God. Verse 14 it says, the word became flesh. Now, when Jesus was born as a babe in the manger at Bethlehem, he had always existed as the Son of God with the Father in heaven. But now he chose to come into the world in a human body. It says he dwelt, means he tabernacled or he pitched his tent. His body was the tent in which he lived among men for 33 years. And it says, and we beheld his glory. In the Bible, glory often means the bright, shining light which was seen when God was present. It also means the perfection and the excellence of God. When the Lord Jesus was here on this earth, he veiled his glory in a body of flesh. But there were two ways in which his glory was revealed. First, there was his moral glory. By this, we mean the radiance of a perfect life and character. There was no flaw or blemish in him. He was perfect in all of his ways. Every virtue was manifested in his life in perfect balance. <clears throat> then there was the visible outshining of his glory, which took place on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we see that in Matthew 17, 1 and 2. At that time, Peter, James, and John saw his face shining like the sun and his garments gleaming like a bright light. These three disciples were given a preview of the splendor which the Lord Jesus will have when he comes back to this earth and reigns for a thousand years. Now when John said we beheld his glory, 
He was referring primarily, no doubt, to his moral glory of the Lord Jesus. He and the other disciples beheld the wonder of an absolutely life, perfect life lived here on earth. But now it is likely that John also included the incident on the Mount of Transfiguration as well. The glory which the disciples saw indicated to them that he was truly the Son of God. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. That is Christ, God's unique Son. God did not have any other sons like him. Now, in one sense, all true believers are sons of God. But Jesus is the Son of God in a class all by himself. As the Son of God, he is equal to God. The Savior was full of grace and truth. So on one hand, full undeserved kindness for others, he was also completely honest and upright, and he never excused sin or approved evil. To be completely gracious and at the same time completely righteous is something only that God can be. Let's look at verse 15. It says, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He comes after me, is preferred before me, for he was before me. <clears throat> now John the Baptist bore witness that Jesus was the Son of God. Before the Lord entered upon his public ministry, John had been telling men about him. When Jesus arrived on the scene, John said, in effect, this is the one I have been describing to you. Jesus came after John as far as his birth and his ministry were concerned. He was born six months after John, and he presented himself to the people of Israel sometime after John had been preaching and baptizing. But Jesus was preferred before John. He was greater than John. He was worthy of more honor. The simple re reason being he was before John. In other words, he existed from all eternity. He was the Son of God. Let's look at verse 16 here. It says, And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. <clears throat> all who believe on the Lord Jesus receive supplies of spiritual strength out of his fullness. His fullness is so great that he can provide for all Christians in all countries and in all ages. The expression grace for grace probably means grace upon grace or abundant grace. But here, grace means God's favor, which he showers on his beloved children. Now, verse 17 here, let's read that together. It says, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
in verse 17, John contrasts the Old Testament period and the New Testament era here. The law that was given through Moses was not a display of grace. It commanded men to obey and condemn them if they failed to do so. It told men what was right, but did not give them the power to do it. It was given to show men that they were sinners, but it could not save them from their sins. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He did not come to judge the world, but to save those who were unworthy, who could not save themselves, and who were enemies. That is grace, heaven's best for earth's worst. Not only did grace come through Jesus Christ, but truth came by him as well. He said of himself, I am the truth. He was absolutely honest and faithful in all his words and works. He did not show grace at the expense of truth. Although he loved sinners, he did not love their sins. He himself <coughs> knew the wages of sin with death, so he himself died to pay the penalty of death that we deserved in order that he, Christ, might show undeserved kindness to us in saving our souls <coughs> and giving us a home in heaven. Let's look at verse 18 here. It says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of his Father, has declared him. Verse 18 says that no one has seen God at any time. God is spirit, and therefore he's invisible. He does not have a body, although he did appear to men in the Old Testament in visible form as an angel or as a man. These appearances did not reveal what God is really like. They were merely temporary appearances by which he, God, chose to speak to his people. The Lord Jesus is God's only begotten son. He is God's unique son. There is no other son like him. He always occupies a place of special nearness to God the Father. Even when he was here on earth, Jesus was still in the bosom of his Father. He was one with God and he was equal to God. This blessed one has fully revealed to men what God is like. When men saw Jesus, they saw God. They heard God speak. They felt God's love and tenderness. God's thoughts and attitudes toward mankind have fully been declared by Christ. Now here's some examples of how God revealed himself to men as angels or man. It says the angel of the Lord that appeared to Hagar was God himself. Three times he appeared as a man, once in a burning bush that was not consumed, and four times as the angel of the Lord. Each time this occurred, this was an extraordinary situation. 
He appeared to Hagar, and you can see that in Genesis 16, 9-13. God appeared to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 18, 1-33. God again appeared to Abraham on Mount Moriah, and we can find that in Genesis 22, 11-14. The Lord appeared to Jacob in Genesis 32, 24-43. God appeared to Gideon. In Judges 11, 6, 11, 11, 6, 11 through 24. And he appeared to Samson's parents in Judges 13, 2 through 23. <clears throat> and God was in the fiery furnace with Daniel in chapter 3, 23 through 29. Now we're going to move on here and we're going to be looking now at the testimony of John the Baptist. And we find that in uh, 19 through 34. So let's begin with verse 19 here. It says, in fact, let's read 19 through 23. Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Verse 21. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we, wait, that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? In verse 23 he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now looking at verse 20, uh, 19 here. When the news reached Jerusalem that a man named John was telling the nation to repent because the Messiah was coming, the Jews sent a committee of priests and Levites to find out who this was. The priests were those who carried on important services in the temple, while the Levites were servants who attended to common duties there. Who are you, they asked. Are you the long-awaited Messiah? But John was a faithful witness. His testimony was that he was not the Christ. He was not the Messiah. Verse 21 and 22. The Jews expected Elijah to return to earth prior to the coming of Christ, according to Malachi 4.5. So they reasoned that if John was not the Messiah, then perhaps he was Elijah. But John assured him that he was not. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses had said, The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your midst and from your brethren. Him you shall hear. The Jews remembered this prediction and thought that John might be this prophet mentioned Moses, mentioned by Moses. But again, John said, it is not so. So now the delegation would have been embarrassed to go back to Jerusalem without a definite answer. And so they asked John for a statement as to who he was And in verse 23, he said, 
I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist quoted from Isaiah 40 verse 3, where it was prophesied that a forerunner would appear to announce the coming of Christ. In other words, John stated that he was the forerunner who was predicted. He was the voice in Israel was the wilderness. Because of their sin and their departure from God, the people had become dry and barren like a desert. John spoke of himself simply as a voice. He did not pose as a great man to be praised or admired, but as a voice not to be seen, but only to be heard. John was the voice, but Christ was the word. The word needs a voice to make it known, and the voice is no value without a word. <clears throat> the word is infinitely greater than the voice, but think about it. We can be, that can be our privilege too, to be a voice for him. So John's message was to make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, the Messiah is coming. Remove everything in your life that would hinder you from receiving him. Repent of your sins so that he can come and reign over you as king of Israel. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. <coughs> it says, and they asked him, I'm sorry, verse 24. And those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? The Pharisees formed a, a strict sect of Jews who prided themselves on their superior knowledge of the law and on their efforts to carry out the most minute details of the instructions of the Old Testament. Actually, many of these men were hypocrites who appeared to be righteous, but who lived very sinful lives. They wanted to know what authority John had for baptizing if he was not one of the important persons named. Look at verses 26 and 27 here. John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one, of, one among you who you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. <coughs> he says, I baptize with water, said John. He did not want anyone to think that he was important. His task was simple. All he did was point men to Christ. Whenever his hearers repented of their sins, he baptized them in water as an outward symbol of their change. And see, this is what baptism is. It's a picture of Christ's death and his resurrection. As we get baptized, when we're being submerged under the water, what we're saying publicly is we're putting off our old man 
and we're coming up out of the water and walking in that newness of life with Christ. Now, verse 27, it says, There stands one among you whom you do not know. John continued referring, of course, to Jesus. The Pharisees did not recognize him as the long-looked-for Messiah. In effect, John was saying to the Pharisees, Do not think of me as a great man. The one you should be paying attention to is the Lord Jesus. Yet you do not know who he really is. He is the one who is worthy. He came after John the Baptist, Baptist, yet he deserves all the praise and the preeminence. It was the duty of a slave or a servant to untie his master's sandals. But John did not consider himself worthy to perform such a humble, lowly service for Christ. Verse 28. It says, These things were done in Beth at Abara beyond the Jordan. <clears throat> now the exact location of Bethany is not known, but we do know that it was a place on the east side of the Jordan River. Verse 29, it says, The next day John saw coming toward him, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the next day after the visit of the Pharisees from Jerusalem, John looked up and saw Jesus coming toward him. And in the thrill and excitement of that moment, he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who bears the sin of the world. Now the Lamb was a sacrificial animal among the Jews. God had taught his chosen people to slay a lamb and to sprinkle its blood as a sacrifice. The lamb was killed as a substitute and its blood shed so that sins might be forgiven. However, the blood of the lamb slain during the Old Testament period did not put away sin. Those lambs were pictures or types pointing forward to the fact that God would one day provide a lamb who would actually take away the sin. Now, all down through history, godly Jews waited for the coming of this lamb. And now at last, the time had come, and John the Baptist triumphantly announced the arrival of the true Lamb of God. When he said that Jesus bears the sin of the world, he did not mean that everyone's sins are therefore forgiven. The death of Christ was great enough in value to pay for the sins of the whole world but only to those sinners who received the Lord as their Savior. This is interesting. A man by the name of J.C. Jones points out that this verse sets forth the excellency of the Christian atonement. 
Number one, it excels in the nature of the victim. Whereas the sacrifices of Judaism were irrational lambs, <coughs> the sacrifices of Christianity is the Lamb of God. Number two, it excels in the efficiency of the work, whereas the sacrifices of Judaism only brought sin to remembrance every year. But the sacrifice of Christianity took away sin. He put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And number three, it excels in the scope of its operation, whereas the Jewish sacrifices were intended for the benefits of one nation. The sacrifice of Christianity is intended for all nations. It takes away the sin of the world. Let's look at verses 30 and 31 here. <clears throat> it says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now, John never grew weary of reminding people that he was only preparing the way for someone greater than himself who was coming. Number one, Jesus was greater than John to the same extent that God is greater than man. John was born a few months before Jesus, but Jesus had existed from all eternity. When John said, I did not know him, he did not necessarily mean that he had never seen him before. Since they were cousins, it is probable that John and Jesus were well acquainted. But John had not recognized his cousin as being the Messiah until the time of his baptism. John's mission was to prepare the way of the Lord and then point him out to the people of Israel when he appeared. It was for this reason that John baptized people in water to prepare them for the coming of Christ. It was not for their purpose of attracting disciples to himself. Let's look at verse 32. It says, And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. The reference here was to the time John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. After the Lord went up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended like a dove and remained upon John. According to Matthew 3.16, let's look at verse 33. He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. See, God had revealed to John that the Messiah was coming and that when he came, the Spirit would descend upon him and would stay on him. Therefore, when this happened to Jesus, John realized that this was the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, the Holy Spirit is a person, one of the three persons in the Godhead. He is equal with God the Father and God the Son. Whereas John baptized with water, Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, the baptism with the Holy Spirit took place on the day of Pentecost. And you can find that in Acts 1, 5, 2, 4, and 38. Now, at the time, the Holy Spirit came down from heaven to dwell in the body of every believer and also to make a believer a member of the church, the body of Christ. And we find that in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Now, as we close here in verse 34, it says, And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, on the basis of what he saw at the baptism of Jesus, John testified positively to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God who was foretold as coming into the world. And when John said that Christ was the Son of God, he meant that he was God the Son. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, Lord. We thank you for your word today. And we pray, Father, if there's anyone here tonight, Father, that has never made that decision for you, we pray that salvation would come. And if, it, if you find that it's your desire that you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the worship team leads us in a song of worship. Just get up out of your seat, come on down the aisle, and I'll meet you right here at the steps. And we can say a simple prayer of faith with you. So if this is your desire, you come.